Okay, if you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew. We'll look at verses, uh, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. The text is right there on the next page of the bulletin for you. Uh, we're going to talk about church discipline this morning. Uh, that word discipline doesn't, uh, doesn't show up in the passage that we're looking at, but the church really has historically seen this as the classic passage, the foundational passage for our understanding of how to engage in what we call church discipline. Uh, discipline, very simply, is just how God shapes us, it's how he grows us, how he uh, brings us to maturity as his children, how the holy God of love, who is our father, forms his children in his image. That's what discipline is. <clears throat> and God calls us um, to participate in that process together as his people. It's not just something that he does to us. It's something that he does in us and among us and through us together as his people to help each other grow in our relationship with God. That's all church discipline is, really. It's, uh, it's difficult. <laughs> it's, it can be painful. Um, but really, it's pretty simple and it's good. Uh, so hopefully the subject doesn't make you too nervous. Um, you may have had some assumptions about discipline or experience with it in the past. Um, but hopefully this doesn't make you nervous. I love this stuff. And it's not because I'm uh, especially authoritarian or litigious or contentious or anything like that. In fact, you've probably heard me say uh, many times, I tend to be conflict avoidant. And, you know, engaging in church discipline does not allow you to be conflict avoidant. <laughs> Um, even though church discipline is challenging for everyone involved, uh, I love it because of how it reflects the gospel, how it reveals the character and the mercy of God, how it reveals the heart and purpose of Jesus for his people. So in church discipline, God gives us the opportunity to participate in his love. That's what he's doing. So whatever assumptions you might have had about church discipline, whatever your previous experience might be with it, uh, hopefully you will... Take some time here with us this morning to, to consider the grace and the glory of what Jesus is saying here. Uh, so let's look at that. Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we ask that you would show us your great love, that you would draw us into it, that you would keep us in your love, that you would give us a share in it as we consider your word together this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> well, what I think uh, we really need to come to see this morning is that everything Jesus says here, he's saying because he loves his people. 
Jesus wants us to be a community that is shaped by his love. His love has a particular shape, and it, it uh, manifests itself in a community in a particular way. He wants us to participate in his love as we address each other's sins and help each other grow in our relationship with God. So a familiar term we use for that is church discipline. Uh, we could call it other things, like the pursuit of reconciliation. That's what this is. Or redemptive relationships. Or just simply the exercise of holy love. Whatever we want to call it, Jesus is telling us to do something here that we recognize is very difficult for us to do. If you stop to think about it, you know it's difficult to do. Uh, but, but that's long been recognized as something that's actually essential for the life of the church. So historically, churches like ours... Uh, That is, churches that find at least some of our roots in the Protestant Reformation uh, have recognized uh, what we can call three marks of the true church, Uh, three biblical characteristics of a church, three uh, essential features of churches that are, you know, defined by the scriptures or governed by the scriptures. First is the faithful preaching of the word. And second is the proper administration of the sacraments. Third of the three marks of the true church is the exercise of church discipline. So if a congregation has all these three, then we can consider it to be a true Christian church that the scriptures are describing. And uh, if a congregation lacks really any of these three, then it is not a true biblical church. So these three marks are pretty significant. It's easier for us to appreciate the first two, right? The word and the sacraments. Word, sacraments, church discipline. Well, those first two, hey, thumbs up, right? Uh, We're hungry for the word and sacraments. We've gotten the life of Christ for our souls through the word and sacraments. But the exercise of church discipline strikes us as a fearful thing. We might dread the thought of going to confront someone in their sins. I dread the thought of someone confronting us for our sin, right? We need to see how there is also life in Christ for our souls set forth in church discipline. So... We believe Jesus gives us his word and sacraments because he loves us. We just need to believe that he also gives us church discipline because he loves us. And this is exactly the place in the scripture where that can become very clear to us. This passage that we've read from Matthew 18. I'll tell you, it's difficult even for elders in the church to see the love of Christ in church discipline. Uh, One elder I know who's probably one of the most highly respected elders actually in our denomination. Um once told me that he thought of church discipline this way. We were talking about the book of church order, uh, <clears throat> about a third of which is dedicated to this process, the detailed processes of church discipline. And this elder told me that when it comes time for him to engage in that process with someone in the church, he begins to treat the other person differently. And he said he takes off his shepherding hat and he puts on his discipline hat. And he starts acting less like a shepherd and more like a, I guess, a lawyer or a judge. You know. And I think he said he'd gotten that idea, that imagery, that phrasing from another highly influential elder in our denomination. That conception of church discipline as something that is distinct from the shepherding love of Christ is deadly. It's wrong. It's absolutely contrary to the conception of discipline that Jesus teaches us here. What's the context of what Jesus is teaching us here? The context of this, what's the very last thing Jesus told us? In the verses immediately preceding this, Jesus spoke of the Father's love for his little ones as a shepherd. 
as a shepherd who loves his sheep, who cares for them, who goes to the greatest lengths to save and preserve even one. And not just in the surrounding context of Matthew's gospel here, but in the broader context of the whole Bible, we have this picture, a very clear picture of discipline as a function of God's shepherding love. It is the good shepherd who disciplines his beloved sheep. And so we pray in Psalm 23, we pray it frequently, we recite it together sometimes as our uh, confession of faith, that Yahweh is my shepherd, and we say to him, "Your, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right, So the shepherd's rod is used to whack straying sheep back onto the path. That's discipline. That's the sheep who knows himself to need that discipline. The sheep who knows that in his sin he's prone to leave the God he loves is comforted by the knowledge that God shepherds us in this way. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Even more prevalent in the scriptures than, you know, the the good shepherd disciplining his sheep, even more prevalent is the way discipline is talked about as a function of God's fatherly love. It is the good father who disciplines his beloved son. So you have a bunch of passages printed there in sort of smaller font underneath the main passage in the bulletin. A couple of those from Proverbs. My son, do not despise Yahweh's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For Yahweh reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And then again, he says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And there are many other places in scriptures that talk about discipline this way as a feature of God's fatherly love. So we can see Discipline is not a threat. It's not a threat. It's not something to be afraid of, to dread. It is a feature of God's love for us. It is a feature of divine love. God has a purpose for his people. God wants what he knows is truly best for us. The Father wants us to be with him, to stay with him. The Father wants us to become like him. And when we stray... From his purpose, from his path, he exercises the care of a good shepherd. He exercises the love of a heavenly father, the the heavenly father that he is, to bring us back. So in our discipline, God is not hitting pause on love. As if, you know, usually he treats you with love, but in discipline, well, he's taken off that hat and put on another one, right? Jesus does not suspend his love or cancel his love. He doesn't take off his shepherd's hat or put on his judge's hat or anything like that. Discipline is an act of divine love, and it is this love that he is opening up to us as he calls us to engage in his discipline with one another in in the church. So in church discipline, Jesus is calling us to love each other with his own love. So he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So Jesus has been talking about his own relationship of sonship to God. Speaking of, of God in familial terms, he is the beloved son of the heavenly father. And by his grace, he shares that sonship with us so that we are called sons of God. Uh, hopefully you won't impute you know, sexism to that language as none is intended 
in the scripture. Uh, we can legitimately say we're children of God, or we can say we're sons and daughters of God. That's all fine. The point of the language really has nothing to do with sex or gender when it calls all the people the sons of God. It, it means it's, it's the privilege of the son's relationship to the father, right? The privilege is extended to all who are in the church, men and women, enjoy the very relationship of the beloved son with his eternal father. And if Jesus is the son, and if he calls you a son, and I'm called a son, then that means we're all brothers to each other. That's the relationship that he has established. The sonship of Christ shared with his people is the foundation for calling each other brother or sister in the church. So Jesus places the highest significance on our relationships here. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. How does it feel when someone who is close to you, like a brother, says or does something that hurts you? Do you want to call that person brother anymore? Or do you want to keep a relational distance? Jesus reminds us of the divine love that unites us in the family of God, a love that is not natural to us as sinners who are prone to withdraw from those who hurt us. When someone in the church sins against you, he has not acted like a brother. But he still is a brother. And you are called to engage him, still considering him as a brother, with the hope that that relationship will be fully mended when your brother rejoins you in the love of God, in the family of God. So when Jesus calls us here to love with his own love, he's calling us to pursue reconciliation and to do it for his sake. Not just because he told us, because he told us, but really for his sake, to live in our relationship with this offending brother, always with reference to our relationship with Jesus and with God. So he's not just saying, you know, if your brother disagrees with you about something, if your brother inconveniences you or irritates you or says something you didn't want to hear, your brother is hard to get along with or smells bad or whatever it is that offends you, right? If your brother sins against you. So sin is a very specific term. It's a violation of God's commandments. Sin is a breach of one's personal relationship with God. Sin is primarily, first and foremost, between the sinner and God. So, So David confesses in Psalm 51, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So if your brother sins against you, what he's done, primarily, first and foremost, is he's broken his relationship with God. He's broken his relationship with God with reference to you, in, in his relationship with you, in a way that's affected you. The only way you can know if your brother has sinned against you, not just done something offensive to you or said something you didn't like, the only way you can know if your brother has sinned against you is if you know what sin is. If you... If you know what God says sin is, if you conceive of what this brother has done in terms of his relationship with God, think about it primarily that way. 
if you're, if you're not just going to be doing what, trying to do what Jesus says, but just be lashing out at your brother for irritating you, if you would truly participate in the love of Christ, as he's calling you to do, you've got to keep in mind what Jesus thinks about sin, how Jesus addresses sin. Learn how to graciously address that sin as Jesus himself would. Jesus tells us clearly to go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So your brother has sinned against you. He's violated the relationship with God. He's violated the relationship with you. He's broken things. You take the initiative in restoring that relationship, Jesus says. Uh, So Tim Keller, the book that we're going to look at in our home group, great book uh, called Forgive. And he says, if a relationship has broken down, it is always your move to initiate relationship repair. Jesus says in Matthew 5, if your brother has something against you, go to him. While Jesus says in Matthew 18, if you have something against your brother, go to him. So it doesn't matter who started it. A Christian is responsible to begin the process of reconciliation regardless of how the alienation began. And let me tell you, uh, that is the last thing anyone ever wants to do. Uh, If someone has hurt you, what do you want to do? Well, you want to hurt them back. Or at least you want to stay away from that person so they can't hurt you like that again. We are not usually inclined to do the hard work of healing the relationship, especially not when somebody else broke it. We are not inclined to lean into the relationship when it means really conflict. It's a confrontation, leaning into that relationship without the guarantee of certain outcomes. You don't know that when you do lean into that relationship, your brother's going to respond well. Like I said, I tend to be conflict avoidant. Jesus doesn't allow us to be conflict avoidant as members of his family because conflict avoidance is not love. It's fear and it's self-protection. And you know what else is not love? Is going to your brother to just air your grievances. To vent. To get something off your chest. That's not love. That's literally giving expression to bitterness. Jesus calls us to love with his own love, to go to our brother and tell him his fault. Tell him what he's done with regard to his relationship with God and his relationship with you. Between you and him alone, in a way that that is, supremely concerned not for yourself, not for self-protection or self-expression, but for the sinning brother, for his restoration, for his growth. That's truth and grace at work together supernaturally. Jesus knows it is difficult enough for us to be confronted in our sins. He is so gracious in making allowances like this for all our weaknesses, giving us every opportunity to repent as he lists out these steps that hopefully lead to repentance. Jesus is not concerned with the possibility of, you know, our reputations being damaged. That's not why he's saying, well, just keep it between you and your brother as long as you can to protect his reputation. That's not what it's about. It's not why he calls us to address the sinning brother privately. As the good shepherd, he is concerned to deal gently with us when we sin 
as it is his kindness that leads us to repentance, as Paul says in Romans 2. So again, it's very difficult to follow Jesus, even just on this one verse, this the first step of this whole church discipline thing, because we usually want to have nothing to do with those who sin against us, especially the more significant the nature of the sin, you know, we'd just be okay letting those relationships die. Uh, but that simply is not the way of Jesus. He is not satisfied to let relationships just die. He would rather die himself if it meant reconciliation with those who had sinned grievously against him. <clears throat> Anyone who has an interest in the love of God in Christ will see, uh, see his love and seek the motive power of his love in going to the brother and seeking the restoration of the relationship. If you choose not to follow Jesus in this way, that's a failure of love. It's a refusal to participate in his love. It's a failure or a refusal to believe that his love looks like this, that such discipline as this is divine love. Do what the Lord says is best for the brother who has sinned against you. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's always the goal of love, to regain the brother, to restore the relationship, to reconcile. You cannot guarantee that outcome by following Jesus in his love. But then uh, you're not called to participate based on how you anticipate things going with the brother. Jesus doesn't leave room for you to say, never thought about it, and I just can't see how this is going to work. I, I just can't see this brother will actually repent. <clears throat> so, you know, it's not worth the trouble. It's not worth the pain of the process. Jesus doesn't leave room for that. Jesus leaves room for you to join him in his love, which doesn't always immediately work out in reconciliation. He says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. <clears throat> so again, uh, Tim Keller said that um, Jesus says that the relationship breach between the two Christians is not the concern only of the two parties. It is the concern of the entire church. We're, we're a community that is shaped by the love of Christ, called to extend his love together through that process of discipline, to help each other corporately. Sometimes we, corporately, together, will love with Christ's love, and uh, others respond badly. We want to provide every opportunity for repentance and faith in Jesus, every opportunity for reconciliation, but sometimes all those opportunities are refused. And practically, what this looks like is this. After you personally have approached the sinning brother, and then after you've approached him along with one or two others, then what you do, you, you bring this matter to the attention of the elders, practically speaking, is how this works out. Bringing it to the church means bringing it to the elders. And if the sinning brother continues to resist repentance, then the elders would excommunicate him from the church. And excommunicate... Uh, simply means put him out of the communion of the church. At that point, uh, what the, the offender, the sinning brother, what he's demonstrated is that he's not interested in the life that is in Christ. 
He's not interested in the life that's characterized by repentance and faith. And so in excommunication, in a sense, all we're doing is agreeing with him. We're agreeing with the statement of his actions. Agreeing that he doesn't belong in the communion of those who trust in Christ and confess their sins and turn away from them. So Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile. So that's, you know, relate to him as someone who's outside the church. You have no expectations that this person would live as a believer in any way. And a tax collector, remember at this time in uh, Israel under Roman occupation, tax collectors were considered traitors. Those who have betrayed the brotherhood of their people for their own advantage. And that's a sad moment when you declare that reality. It's sad because you love. It's sad because you love that brother. But even that is not the end of love. Jesus gives us excommunication here still as an exercise of his divine love. Uh, Again, it's very difficult for us to conceive of it this way, uh, even for elders in the church. Another example, one time in our presbytery, uh, one of the pastors who was under discipline refused uh, even to respond to our calls for repentance. Uh, We met with him a few times, started to engage in this process of church discipline with him, and then he refused to meet with us anymore, or wouldn't return our calls, wouldn't, wouldn't engage. Instead, uh, what he did, he split his church, and he took a group out of our denomination and started his own church with people who were on his side. He didn't believe that we were on his side. Um, when he didn't respond to our calls for repentance, then the presbytery, pastors and elders from our region, Uh, We were deliberating whether to excommunicate him. And one prominent member of the presbytery stood up and said, Brothers, out of love, let's not excommunicate him. Out of love, let's delay this decision and give the sinning brother more time to respond. And it seemed like we were failing to realize that excommunication is a function of love. Excommunication is still affording an opportunity to respond with repentance. We have a hard time believing that discipline is for our good. It feels like a threat, like an attack. We have the hardest time believing that excommunication is for our good. It feels like the end of love. It feels like love has been cut off, that we've been cut off from love. But God says that even excommunication is an act of love. When Paul writes about excommunication to the church in Corinth, Dealing with a case of discipline of a man who refused to repent, he says in 1 Corinthians 5, when you as a church are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the motive is always love. The hope is salvation, always. Restoration, reconciliation. Excommunication is not the end of love. It is the extreme tool of love. It is the ultimate call to repentance when out there in the spiritual dark and cold, away from the family table, you just might come to know what you had before because now you've lost it. But you can still be found by Jesus out there. Jesus knows what it's like to be excommunicated. 
to be cast outside the camp, declared cut off from God's people, to be treated as a sinner and a traitor. Jesus knows how to relate to sinners and even has grace for those who have the hardest time repenting. It takes the most extreme measures to bring them to repentance. Jesus knows how to relate. The good shepherd knows which rod is best for you, even if it means excommunication and the most difficult path to repentance. And he calls us to participate in that, even that most severe discipline, with his own love, in his name, with his power, with his authority. So he says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Uh, People commonly make the mistake of thinking that Jesus here is promising that the Father is just going to answer every prayer that you get together and ask him, right? As long as, you know, just a minimal few of us uh, agree on what we're asking. The quorum is like two, right? But if you've been tracking with the context, you'll understand that he's still talking about how we participate in his love through the process of church discipline. He's talking about this incredible privilege that he's given to us that sinners really exercise his own authority. Sinners really exercise his own love in church discipline. What we do in the community of Christ here on earth has, has real spiritual effect, has real effect in heaven. When we gather in the unity of the Spirit to love in the name of Christ, then the presence of Christ really is with us. And this is true even though none of us is perfect, even though we are sinners in constant need ourselves of confession and repentance, the same thing we're calling this sinning brother to to join us in. And that is maybe the most difficult thing to believe about this whole process, that sinners would have a share in the authority of Christ's love. This is certainly the hardest thing to swallow for those who are being called to repentance by brothers in the church. Uh, Those who are under discipline have a hard time believing that this is being done for their good. They have a hard time accepting discipline as an act of love. But they seem to have an especially hard time with the fact that Jesus has delegated his authority to other sinners. That it's other sinners who are calling me to repent. How dare they? Those who are under discipline are suspicious of those who are in authority over them. They might even expect that authority to be abused in ways that are harmful to them. And you know what? Maybe that authority will be abused because we are sinners. That's not good. But it was Jesus' idea to call us to participate in this thing called the church. Sinners living with other sinners as brothers, as sons of God. It was the sinless one's idea to share his authority with sinners who, 
at best imperfectly try to exercise Christ's love and authority by faith, to have Christ's own motives as they approach their sinning brothers. It's natural for sinners to distrust authority, to disbelieve the goodness of the authority of Jesus in our discipline, and all the more as Jesus employs other sinners in our discipline. But ultimately, he is the good shepherd. And God disciplines us because he loves us as sons, And the methods that he prescribes for the church to exercise discipline, they're all features of his gracious love to us. There is no need for a sinner who is being called to repentance to feel attacked by this process. The only thing being attacked is your sin and the spiritual death that it brings. And all you have to do is turn away from death to life in Christ through repentance and faith. Jesus says in Revelation 3, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So entrusting yourself to the care of Jesus in the process of discipline means believing that he knows what's best for you. And that should dictate how you respond to your brothers when they come to you and tell you your fault. They come to you in his name. You respond to them as if you were responding to him. The way you would respond to Jesus is how you respond to church discipline. It's the grace and glory of Jesus at work among us when he calls us to respond to his love and to participate in his love. To relate to him by relating to each other as he calls us to do. Why would you want to do any of that? Any of this? Why would you seek reconciliation with a brother who sinned against you? Why would you respond to a brother's call to repentance for your own sin? Because of your relationship with Jesus, that's it. Because you know his love, because you know what he's done to reconcile you to the Father, the lengths to which he has gone. Because this is how we live with God and become more like God. Because you want to dwell in his love and abide in his love. So abide in his gracious love together. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these words of yours are very challenging for us. Help us to receive them as your words, which are life to us. Help us to live with your life animating us together. Help us to love the brothers with your own love through the power of your spirit. We ask in your name. Amen.